Welcome to The Cap, where we are here to speak with college reps and other professionals in the field of college admissions to help answer all your questions and guide you through every step of the process. So if you're serious about college admissions, you've come to the right place. Are you ready? Let's talk about it. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Durante. Welcome to The Cap, the College Admissions Process Podcast. I am your host, John Durante, and I am here to introduce you to college admissions representatives and other professionals in the field of college admissions. Our purpose is to serve you, the students and parents, so that you may gain insight straight from the people who ultimately make the decisions. Regardless of whether you apply to a particular school being highlighted in a given episode, you should listen to all of them, as each guest will give you tremendous insight and advice on every aspect of the college admissions process, prompting you to come up with your own follow-up questions for when you visit campus or meet with a college admissions representative yourself. Don't forget to visit our website, www.collegeadmissionstalk.com, or the show notes of each episode to access the alphabetical list of all the colleges available with the related audio link to the right of each school. The alphabetical list provides you with on-demand access to all of the episodes so that you may listen whenever you wish. And if you want to receive links to episodes before they are released on the podcast, along with other related resources, please fill out the email opt-in form also available on our website and in the show notes of each episode. Lastly, please email me with any questions or comments at collegeadmissionstalk at gmail.com. So are you ready? Let's talk about it. Welcome to The Cap, the College Admissions Process Podcast. I am your host, John Durante, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you today Nicole Reynolds, who's the Dean of Undergraduate Admissions at Bryn Mawr College. Nicole, thank you so much for being here today. How are you? Oh, I'm well, John. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here, and I'm really excited to share uh, about Bryn Mawr with families and students. Well, that's terrific. And we, too, are honored and happy to have you here today. So, Nicole, let me ask you, what can you tell us about Bryn Mawr that makes it so appealing for so many students to want to apply and ultimately attend? Oh, great opening question. Uh, but just in case Bryn Mawr is new to the ears of any of your listeners, I want to give a quick lay of the land before diving into my answer. So Bryn Mawr is a private residential liberal arts college for women located just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is, of course, a known foodie city with more arts and cultural opportunities than you could take advantage of in a decade, let alone four college years. <laughs> we were founded in 1885 and are one of the original seven sister colleges. So the sisters, as we're known, were spaces created to educate women for lives of purpose at a time when other institutions didn't welcome us into their educational settings. Today, our student body at Bryn Mawr is 1,400 strong, and our academic offerings, which span 42 majors, are grounded in open inquiry, global perspectives, civic engagement, and interdisciplinary innovation. Our longstanding consortium partnership with nearby institutions, so Haverford, Swarthmore, and UPenn, were known as the Quaker Consortium, means that students get to enrich and expand their Bryn Mawr experience in any number of ways, from taking classes on other campuses to joining shared clubs to crafting a social life that encompasses at least our nearest by partners, uh, Haverford and Swarthmore. So now that we're a little more grounded in Bryn Mawr, you asked why students apply and ultimately attend. And there are actually three pillars to my answer. Our identity as a women's college, our inspired campus and community, and our academic approach and outcomes. 
as a proud alum of one of the sister colleges, I have to start with our identity as a women's <laughs> college because it's such a powerful part of the Bryn Mawr experience. And by women's college, I don't mean to suggest there's not gender diversity among our student body. There is, though at the point of admission, a student needs to be a cis woman consistently living as a female or non-binary to be considered a candidate. By women's college, I simply mean that we are a space where female expertise, achievement, and leadership is the norm and not the exception. Doesn't that sound amazing? (laughs) That is amazing. Absolutely. (laughs) Choosing a women's college is an intentional act, and that intentionality in turn informs our community feel. So we value authentic connection here, mutual uplift, collaboration over competition, and we openly celebrate one another's successes. All of that is a major draw for many of our applicants who recognize the ways in which culture often discourages women from being ambitious and from taking up space. At Bryn Mawr, students get to develop their ideas and sense of self free of some of the cultural guardrails that tell them as women who and how to be in the world. They want a college experience where they won't run up against preconceived notions about what they can or should do on the basis of their gender identity or any other facet of their identity, quite frankly. And let me tell you, John, the voice and self-ownership that emerges (laughs) from the women's college environment is not only incredible to behold, but it's something that advantages our graduates in every future setting. So that's the women's college piece. Another draw for students is our campus itself. Have you had the opportunity to visit? I haven't. I haven't been there yet. (laughs) Oh, okay. Oh, my word. It is spectacular. Uh, The Master Landscape Plan at Bryn Mawr was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. It's a stunning central green space ringed by Victorian Gothic academic buildings and residence halls. And I have never seen anything quite as beautiful as the corridor of spring cherry trees in bloom along the walkway to Rockefeller, which is one of our castle-like residence halls. This is to say that students who visit campus tend to fall in love with its aesthetic beauty, and I can't blame them. But it takes more than looks, right? Well, Bryn Mawr has (laughs) brains, too, and that's definitely a driver for our applicants. To speak very plainly, our student body is smart with a capital S. They are just deeply thoughtful and intellectually curious. So our faculty deliver a curriculum designed to challenge and cultivate those talented minds. But we also give students abundant and often funded opportunities to apply knowledge learned inside the classroom to settings outside the classroom. We're really keen on students putting theory into practice here. And they do it in some wildly interesting ways that often lead to continued and impactful work in those fields. So let me just offer a couple of quick examples. Charlotte just graduated this past May. She majored in international studies and minored in both political science and Russian. So there's some of that ambition that is inherent to students (laughs) on our campus. As a Bryn Mawr student, she tackled internships with the Haverford Center for Peace and Global Citizenship, as well as with the American Bar Foundation in Chicago. That led her to a junior fellowship sponsored by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And she's currently working with the American Statecraft Program, contributing to congressional testimony, organizing briefings for government officials, and making recommendations on American foreign policy. Tonima, who's a 2013 graduate, has been recognized for contributing to work on black holes. Now, as a former English major, that statement alone is impressive (laughs) enough to me, but there's more. While Tunima was a Bryn Mawr student, she majored in physics on our campus and in astronomy at Haverford, thanks to that consortium partnership I mentioned. She also pursued internships at NASA and CERN. CERN is the European Organization for Nuclear Research. And she's currently a postdoctoral research associate at Dartmouth after earning her PhD in physics at Yale. In 2020, so just seven years after graduating from Bryn Mawr, she was named one of Science News's 10 Scientists to Watch. 
So the outcomes are wow. really impressive here. And if students are <laughs> eager to, to dig into more examples of the applied learning that we so value, they should check out our 360 degree course clusters and our Tricophilly options online. Um, the latter takes full advantage of our proximity to Philadelphia. But the last thing I want to say about us is what I think is the neatest thing about us. And it's something students might recognize as applicants, but understand profoundly once they're here. And it's this, there is not a single way to Bryn Mawr. Did you hear what I did there? I made Bryn Mawr a verb. <laughs> That's really how many experience this place as a, a great engine for intellectual innovation and interpersonal connection where students shape big ideas in collaboration with others and then carve their own paths toward realizing them. So who wouldn't want to come here? <laughs> well, that's awesome. And I love to Bryn Mawr. You're right. You made it a verb, which is so cool. <laughs> Private liberal arts school for women mm -hmm. outside of the great city of Philly, which of course provides so many internship opportunities and so much more. That's 42 right. majors. You value authentic connections. Mm -hmm. I didn't know, by the way, about the Quaker Consortium, which is mm -hmm. awesome as it gives students so many more opportunities, not only on your campus, but the other campuses in the consortium. And I also read, by the way, Nicole, that mm -hmm. your retention rate has been in the 90% range, which is astonishing as the national average has been at, at about 70%. So that's a testament, again, to the great work you do in admissions, but also the great work that Bryn Mawr does to keep your students happy and wanting to come back year after year once they're on your campus. So what can you tell us about life on campus outside of your great classrooms? <laughs> uh, so there are a couple of different questions here, I think. So I'll tackle them separately. When I hear on campus but outside the classroom, I immediately think of the organized clubs and organizations that are such a core part of the liberal arts experience. And of course, our 12 varsity sports um, run alongside those. We're a Division three school with extraordinary coaching staff. But we have nearly 100 clubs and organizations for students to choose from at Bryn Mawr, and they fall into three broad categories, affinity groups, service-oriented clubs, and performance group. Here's a fun fact. All Bryn Mawr students automatically belong to the Self-Government Association, which is actually the oldest collegiate SGA in the country. And that's a real point of pride for us. When it was formed back in 1892, it was a radical notion to allow students and female students, no less, <laughs> to both craft and enforce the rules of behavior for their own community. Um, not surprisingly, it worked then as it does now. But you're also asking about what less structured time might look like for a Bryn Mawr student. And the answer there is that it's up to the student. This is another example of the power of the women's college space. Our students' social lives are defined by their choice and not by existing and often gendered norms that govern social activity on many college campuses. But to be more specific about what kinds of activities Bryn Mawr students choose, and to be sure what I was saying was accurate, <laughs> I asked a dozen students over the course of the past couple of days what they did for fun <laughs> in and around campus. So on campus, Friday group movie night is very, very popular. So groups of students reserve the TV rooms and the res halls, decide on a movie, order snacks, and set thoughts of academics aside. <laughs> but a student might also go support a friend who's in an on-campus theater production or attend a craft night hosted by a club, like a succulent planning night or something. <laughs> Others walk just east of campus to get to downtown Bryn Mawr. So think restaurants with global offerings, uh, thrift and boutique shops, and the Bryn Mawr Film Institute. There are other towns on the main line that host hotspots for students like Mado, which is a Japanese market, and Trader Joe's, a perennial college student <laughs> favorite. And several of the students I chatted with mentioned Philly's own La Cologne coffee shop as a group weekend study space. Most of what I just mentioned is accessible uh, on foot. 
hitting up the consortium colleges was a frequent response too. So Haverford is a seven minute free bus ride away. So students might opt to attend a party, show or other cultural event there on any given weekend. And then others love going into Philadelphia. The, the train to get into Center City is about 20 minutes. I heard about visits to Reading Terminal, the Art Museum, favorite record in bookstores, sampling cheesesteaks on South Street and dumplings in <laughs> Chinatown. Uh, Nature-oriented students talked about hiking in, in Wissahickon Park or enjoying uh, the riverfront or Japanese gardens at Fairmount Park, which is a huge urban green space in the city with tons of discoverable nooks and crannies. That's all to say that our location is an excellent springboard into any kind of social life a student would wish to have. I mean, how many colleges offer rural, suburban, and large urban fields all within a <laughs> 12-mile radius? It's pretty hard to beat. <laughs> well, that's definitely a great point. And while in the beautiful city of Philadelphia, you absolutely have to taste those cheesesteaks. And For of sure. course, you mentioned 100 clubs, 42 majors, and again, Philadelphia being 20 minutes away from your campus, which is astonishing. And it really sounds like there's something for everyone, again, on your campus and beyond. So we appreciate that overview. So let's get to the application itself. Nicole, what is Bryn Mawr's approach to the admissions process, particularly in terms of the criteria and factors considered when reviewing applications? It's a great question. So I love reading applications. <laughs> I think it's such a sacred window into the hearts, minds, and values of what I think is a truly impressive generation. Gen Z's uh, global awareness, their investment in equity and justice, their can-do attitudes, um, those are convictions that are actually all quite aligned with Bryn Mawr's own values. So I'll start with our philosophical approach to application review at Bryn Mawr before I get into some of the more granular details about how we value specific elements of the application. So like other liberal arts colleges, the application review process at Bryn Mawr is holistic. I happen to think that holistic is both an over-indexed word in college admission and a slippery to understand descriptor for many prospective students. So let me clarify. Students, you should think of holistic review as human review. And that's because our aim is to understand you not just as an academic performer, but as a whole human, one who's shaped by the multiple rich contexts in which you exist. Who are you in the context of your family, of your community? Who are you with your peers and in your school setting? What opportunities may or may not have been available to you because of those contexts? How did you leverage the opportunities you did have? And how have the life experiences that emerged from those contexts informed your values and aspirations? Believe it or not, we can find the answers to all those questions in your application. So our core job as application readers is to synthesize these details to paint the fullest picture of your past accomplishments and your future potential for success at Bryn Mawr. If you were to sit in on our admission committee room, you'd hear us refer to this combination of achievement and potential as spark, as in, wow, Aria has a ton of spark. Maybe it's the student who had more limited academic opportunity but reads much wiser than her years, or one whose leadership capacity and convictions just leap off the page, or one whose quest for knowledge feels insatiable. We pay attention to what the summative feel of an application tells us about a student's spark, intellectual curiosity, and convictions, because those are the qualities that have long been the hallmark of a Bryn Mawr student. So I like to think of that detective work as the art of application reading. But there's a science to the work, too, which ensures that we're reading with consistency across applications. So when I or one of my admission counselors open a file, we evaluate the academic components of a student's application first, things like the transcript and the school profile, test scores if submitted. Now, lots of students think we distill academics to a single metric, like their GPA or their test scores. 
We don't. When we consider your transcript, we're looking at three things in particular. The first is the rigor of the courses you chose relative to what was available to you at your school. The second is your course progression in core academic areas. So how far did you take your math sequence? How many years of language did you choose to study? Again, all of that is assessed against what was available to you in your school setting. And lastly, we look at your grades and grade trends. It's best if we see steady grades or uptrending grades rather than those trending downward over time. After academics, we turn our attention to your writing. And it's here that we really begin to make fine distinctions between and among otherwise qualified candidates, because the reality is lots of applicants to Bryn Mawr present very strong transcripts. So what are we looking for when we read your writing? Well, we're looking for insight into your values. We're looking to learn something we can't learn about you in other parts of the application. And as importantly, we're looking at how you synthesize ideas. How well do you convey critical, analytical, or creative thought? Because that's what will be expected of you in the Bryn Mawr classroom. So take your time with the writing portion of the application because it's a major opportunity to elevate your candidacy in a pool of competitive applicants. We then look at recommendations from your counselors and teachers. I like to say there's no back row at a women's college. Bryn Mawr is a front row learning experience. It's also a highly collaborative one. So in your recommendations, we're looking for evidence that you're a fit in that way. Maybe you're a student whose insights enhance the classroom experience for all those sitting in the seats, or one who shines as a leader in group settings. We just want to see that your skills in the classroom align with our learning model, where students are expected to be active and eager participants in the production of knowledge. Lastly, we turn to understanding how you spend your time outside of the classroom. We're hoping to see sustained commitment in your activity list. Residential liberal arts colleges are known for our highly involved, impactful student bodies. Maybe you're editor of your school newspaper or have been marching for climate justice since middle school. Maybe you have a job or are a dedicated caretaker for a younger sibling or grandparent after school each day. Or maybe you're an entrepreneur. You started a podcast that now has a substantial following. (laughs) Know that we value each of these activities equally. We're just looking for evidence that you can choose a path and follow it with dedication and commitment. And John, I can't responsibly talk about the criteria for application review without acknowledging that as a selective institution, we have far more admissible students each year than we have seats in the class. So while we get to say yes to many students at Bryn Mawr, we have to say no to some others that we know have the ability to contribute to our community and to succeed at Bryn Mawr. So students, if you get those no's from Bryn Mawr or other selective institutions, please know that in most cases, It is not you. It's us. And it's our loss, surely. Well, thank you so much for that comprehensive answer. I love so many parts of it. I want to break it down. First of all, you talked about the art of the application reading process, which I think is awesome. Students, think of the holistic review as a human review. I loved how you talked about that, Nicole. Students, speak of your values and aspirations to paint a full picture of who you are so that the admissions representatives could determine the type of student you were while in high school, which gives them great insight in terms of the type of student you're going to be once on their campus, but not only inside of the classroom, but outside as well. You gave great insight into the transcript review based on what was available to you, the student, based on the high school that you attended. So again, Nicole, that was a comprehensive review, and it's important to also remind students that The application, it's a marketing package. So I think it's very important, as Nicole explained, that each part has to 
build upon the next without repeating itself. The transcript is obviously the work students that you did in the classroom. They're looking to see how you challenge yourself, the ramps that you built over four years, your co-curricular activities or extracurricular activities. They want to see the work that you did outside of the classroom. Your essay is your voice about yourself, a letter of recommendation, obviously someone else's voice about you, while being mindful of having each piece build upon the next. So tremendous answer, Nicole. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And you touched upon it, but I need to ask, the overall number of applications schools are receiving are on the rise thanks to many schools going test optional, for example, with an increase in applications. How do you determine how many students to accept, waitlist, or even deny when you don't necessarily know how many of these applicants will actually attend if accepted? Hmm. Great question. Wouldn't every school love to know that exact number? <laughs> well, like many institutions, we felt the least predictability during the pandemic when the variables impacting the college choice equation were shifting in ways we didn't quite understand. And like many other colleges and universities, Bryn Mawr did over-enroll a couple of years back. When an institution over-enrolls, it puts pressure on faculty. We need more classes to serve students, on our partners in residential life. We need more beds and housekeeping, and on the many other campus partners who provide resources and support to our students. Because stretched resources can really impact the student experience in negative ways, we do what we can to avoid over-enrolling. And this year for Bryn Mawr, it meant using the waitlist both more intentionally and more robustly than in years past. Shaping a class is really intensive and really nuanced work. It's also iterative and collaborative. So at Bryn Mawr, I work with partners from institutional research and senior leadership team to understand the likelihood of various constellations of students saying yes to us. If this cycle was any indication, we're returning to some measure of certainty around the predicted percentage of admitted students who will accept an offer of admission from Bryn Mawr. About 50% of this year's class was seated in our early decision rounds, the remaining half in our regular decision round, where about a third of those offered admission opted to join the incoming class. I want to welcome back Sean Patel, who is the founder and CEO of Prep Expert. He's a Shark Tank entrepreneur making a deal with Mark Cuban back in 2016. And he's also a board certified dermatologist who received a perfect score on his SAT. Sean, welcome back. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back, John. So I just wanted to share with all your listeners real quick that we have an amazing partnership with the College Admissions Process Podcast, and we have a really special offer for all of your listeners. So for any listener who wants to enroll their student into one of our prep expert SAT courses, ACT courses, or one-on-one -on -one tutoring programs, you can get 30% off just for being a listener of the College Admissions Process Podcast. All you need to do is put in the promo code College Talk, one word, just College Talk, and that'll give you 30% off all Prep Expert SAT courses, ACT courses, or one on one tutoring packages. Make sure you use the link in the show notes of the College Admissions Process Podcast. Thank you, Sean. We really appreciate it. To our listeners, as an affiliate partner with Prep Expert, I want to be transparent with you that for every purchase made using our coupon code, which is College Talk, the College Admissions Process Podcast will receive a small commission from Prep Expert. But rest assured that we only promote programs that we believe in and feel would benefit our listeners. 
So whether you're preparing for the SAT, ACT, or need a one-on-one tutor, Prep Expert has the tools and expertise to help you. For more information, please see the Prep Expert affiliate partnership link in the show notes. And now let's get back to the show. Well, that's great insight. So your yield is basically about a third. We appreciate that. And can you share the percentage of students that apply from out of state? Now, I know that you're a private school, but what is the percentage of students that apply from out of state? And does the application process differ based on whether they're in state or out of state? I guess what I'm asking is, you know, are there institutional needs that say you must have a certain percentage from Pennsylvania? Ah, sure. There are not. Uh, We don't have uh, equations uh, or quotas that we need to meet in that way. 66% of our domestic applicants applied from out of state this cycle. In last year's incoming class, so the class that's going to graduate in 2026, the breakdown of geographies were about 30% from the mid-Atlantic, 17% international students, 16% from the West, 13% from New England, and then 10% or fewer from each of the following, the U.S. South, Southwest, Midwest, and U.S. territories. Interestingly, those geostatistics are pretty steady from cycle to cycle. So it's that's a matter of where we recruit, where we touch. Um, some of that's shifting as we think way down the road to the demographic cliff, but it's been pretty steady cycle to cycle. So to answer part two of your question, because we're a private liberal arts college, there are no distinctions for us in the application process between in and out of state. All students apply for admission through the common application. Well, thank you so much for the breakdown. It seems like you have students from every corner of the uh, United States mm-hmm. and even the world. So that's awesome. Thank you mm-hmm. so much. Sure. What is the average profile of the current freshman class in terms of GPA and, of course, any other related data that you collect, such as SAT or ACT scores? And mm-hmm. Nicole, if a student falls lower than that mid-50%, what are some of the things that they can do to enhance their overall application? Mm-hmm. I'm happy to share some data, but I want to contextualize it first. I think that's important because while we do publicize statistics on each first year class in the form of a class profile on our website, as I mentioned, we are not at all in the business of reducing applicants to those kind of metrics in our assessment. So the numbers I'm about to share should be thought of as guideposts and not barriers. Because the reality is there are students uh, who are successful on Bryn Mawr's campus whose, quote, stats fall in a range around those averages. So for the current freshman class, so those graduating in 2026, 63% graduated in the top 10% of their high school graduating class. We don't report average GPA at Bryn Mawr, and that's because we draw applicants from such a wide range of schools nationally and globally, and grading scales differ significantly across those contexts. As far as testing, the middle 50% for ACT test takers in this first year cohort fell between 29 and 33. For SAT, the middle range for reading and writing was between 660 and 750. And for math, it was between 620 and 745. But here's what to bear in mind about testing. And I'm not the first on this wonderful podcast (laughs) to mention this. We've been test optional for many years now. And last year, 43% of applicants opted not to submit test scores. This means that it's those who feel most strongly about their standardized test results who are the ones submitting them. So it skews the averages we share and other institutions share on the higher side. So that's one way to control the impact of your application, is thinking carefully about whether or not to submit those test scores. The advice I always give students is that if you feel like your test scores are aligned with or will strengthen what an application reader will encounter on your transcript, then submit them. And if we have your test scores, we do use them. 
But if you feel that your transcript alone best paints the picture of your academic potential, then you might not want to submit your test scores. Well, that's terrific. And I appreciate you mentioning the test optional nature. So again, if you could repeat, not only the students in terms of the percentage of students that apply test optional, but can you also share the number of students that are actually accepted that did not submit their test scores? Sure. So 43% of applicants didn't submit their test scores. 42 of those that, a percent of those that we admitted um, didn't submit their test scores. Well, that's really good to know. Thank you so much for sharing that data. And Nicole, what are some of the things that students do to demonstrate their interest in attending Bryn Mawr? And is this something that you track and actually use as part of your overall application process? Oh, there are so many ways for students to engage with Bryn Mawr, whether or not they're <laughs> able to put feet on campus. So uh, they can attend our school and community-based organization visits. We're going to be touching several hundred high schools and CBOs across the U.S. and across the globe during our fall travel this cycle. So come see us when we're there. They can also chat with us at college fairs when we're um, hosting one near them. Those who can travel to campus can register for an in-person campus tour, information session, or interview. And if they can't get to campus, they can choose one of our many virtual opportunities to learn more from informal tour guide hangouts. These are just chats. There's no admission counselor in their room. It's just current student <laughs> tour guides who are ready and willing to answer your questions to our more specialized, focused virtual programs that highlight the different resources and experiences at Bryn Mawr. So sessions like First Gen Focus, Financial Aid 101. We also offer virtual interviews for seniors. Some are conducted by alums and others are conducted by our student interviewers. So yes, many ways for students to engage with Bryn Mawr. And note that I'm using the word engage instead of demonstrate interest. And that's because demonstrated interest is another one of those slippery jargony terms in college admission. <laughs> I often hear it used by students to signal what those points of contact will mean to us, the admission counselors, when we're reading their application. And I think the perceived algorithm is that the more they interact, the more likely they are to gain admission. And that's inaccurate. Listen, are my admission counselors able to see how a student has engaged with us in their file? We can. But do a lot of touch points make a student who's not competitive in our applicant pool admissible? No. Nor are we looking that granularly at such information when we're shaping an incoming class. So I'd love to reframe demonstrated interest in what I hope is a more useful way for students engaged in the college search. The more you students interact with Bryn Mawr, the more you'll know about us, and the more sure or not sure you'll be of our fit for you. And another benefit is that because you'll know more, you'll be able to write a stronger application that's keyed to the values and themes that draw you to us. And our holistic application review does consider fit. So I think when we're talking demonstrated interest, those are the real and substantive benefits of intentionally engaging with your school of choice. Well, that's a great way in terms of how to reframe it. It really is for the student's own research so that you could determine whether or not Bryn Mawr is the right fit for you and if, in fact, you are the right fit for Bryn Mawr. But also, I like how you talked about how by doing your research, you'll be able to put together a better overall application. So that's great insight, Nicole. That's Thank you so much. Sure. I'm also curious, when reviewing applications from various high schools from throughout the country, how do you take into account when one student school offers close to 20 advanced placement courses, for example, while someone else's high school may only offer up to five? How do you make a distinction between the two? Mm, thanks for this question, because like the test optional question, how differences in school context might play into application review is a real source of anxiety for many students and families. So here's the good news. At a smaller college like Bryn Mawr, 
the admissions team has time to fully understand school context and synthesize it in our application review. A lot of the details about school context come from the school profile, which is a required part of the application, and we rely on it. But I also expect my readers to be or to become experts on the schools in their regions. Some in my office have overseen their assigned territories for years and years, so they know their schools well and what's considered rigorous in each different setting. So before we put eyes on the transcript, we use our expertise and the school profile to answer the following questions. How many and what type of advanced courses does a particular school offer, if any? We'd certainly never penalize a student for lacking advanced coursework if those options weren't available to them in their high school setting. Are there limitations on how many advanced courses a student could take? So even if a school offers 20 APs, it doesn't automatically mean we'll see several of them on the transcript because some schools limit APs to two in the junior year and two in the senior year. And what is the course progression offered in the core disciplines at this school? I won't be looking for AP French 5 in a student senior year if the highest level of language offered at their school is French 4, for example. Knowing those details allows us to read in an equitable way across varying school contexts. And while newer admission counselors in my office gain proficiency in their schools and territories, our reading structure is designed to catch any interpretive adjustments that might need to be made. I'll explain. We use a two-reader system here at Bryn Mawr. So the first reader is the counselor responsible for the territory from which an application originates. All applications in my office then get a second blind read by another admission counselor. And as a rule, seasoned readers second read the files of newer counselors who've read for less than two full cycles in our office. This allows us to provide ongoing training and have ongoing conversation around equitable assessment across differing school contexts. So to sum this up, uh, assessing a student's academic record thoroughly and intentionally and always in the context of their particular school setting is really central to our evaluation process at Bryn Mawr. Well, I appreciate how you talked about the two-reader application process and not only to keep equity within the process, but also as part of your training for your new and of course, even your veteran counselors. So that's phenomenal. And I also appreciate that you talked about the school profile, very important for students Mm -hmm. and their parents to be familiar what their school's profile actually looks like. Usually it's available on the website or if they want, they can reach out to their high school's guidance department if they care to see that. That of course is something that gets sent to every school that you're applying to students. So you should familiarize yourself to see what's on it. So can you explain, Nicole, what opportunities Bryn Mawr offers students that may have had an IEP while in high school in terms of helping to ensure that they continue to be successful once they're on your campus? Mm, I sure can. Um, I think this is important to clarify because accommodations in the context of high school and in the context of higher ed are governed by two different sets of rules. And I think um, not a lot of families and students know this. And this is not specific to Bryn Mawr. Colleges and universities don't fall under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which is the legal framework for high school IEPs and 504s. Institutions of higher ed are instead required under the American with Disabilities Act to provide, quote, reasonable accommodations, end quote, to ensure access. That is, to remove barriers to accessing academic content. So reasonable accommodations might include extended test time, the ability to record a class, sign language interpreting, etc. Note that this is not the same as ensuring a student's success, which is the thrust of many IEP and 504 programs in high school. So a student who might have been used to accommodations in high school under their IEP, say, bringing a list of formulas into a math exam, wouldn't have that same tool in a college setting governed by accommodation rather than modification. 
It's also important for students to know a few other things about how there are differences. One, a prior history of having received accommodations doesn't mean that similar accommodations will automatically apply during their college years at Bryn Mawr or elsewhere. Two, the documentation required to access support services may differ. And three, the process of applying for accommodations happens separately from the college application process and typically begins after a student has been accepted to and enrolled at the college. And we know that this is an important factor for many students and families in making their final college choice. So for admitted students, we have drop-in hours with our access services office so that families can have that point of contact. But typically at Bryn Mawr, the process for determining eligibility is overseen by our access services office, and it's highly individualized and interactive. So admission officers can't predict the supports a student may have access to. Once a student is granted an accommodation, we have systems in place for students to activate those accommodations with our consortium partners as well, so that the opportunity to use, um, to take classes at Haverford and Swarthmore, et cetera, aren't closed off to them. Prospective students interested in more information can find it on our Access Services website. Hey, podcast friends, are you or someone you know in need of some custom college gear? Prep Sportswear carries a wide variety of college fan gear and apparel, including T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, hats, and so much more. So whether you're getting ready to go to the game, hanging out on campus, organizing a college bed decorating party, or you're simply looking to build upon your college gear, Prep Sportswear has you covered. Check out our Prep Sportswear affiliate partnership link in the show notes for all the details. As an affiliate partner with Prep Sportswear, the podcast does receive a small commission if you make a purchase. But rest assured that we would only promote products that we believe in and feel that would benefit our listeners. And now, back to the show. Well, I really appreciate that, particularly how you explained the distinction where in college it's about reasonable accommodations, which of course is a little different than it is in high school. So again, we really appreciate that. And by the way, I always put the Office of Undergraduate Admission in the show notes. Nicole, if there are any other links that you want to share with the students and their parents, obviously just send it to me. And of course, we'll put them in the show notes. This has been a phenomenal conversation. And before I ask my last question, Nicole, I just have to ask, is there a question I didn't ask today or perhaps a topic that I didn't bring up that you'd like to talk about now? Mm. Well, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the recent SCOTUS decision limiting the consideration of race in college admissions. We know that this decision has created worries for many families and for many, many different reasons. I want to reassure prospective students and families that we've been preparing for this decision for some time here. To paraphrase our mission statement at Bryn Mawr, we believe that equity and inclusion drive excellence and innovation. Inquiry and dialogue across lived experience and knowledge areas is at the heart of a liberal arts education after all. So as an extension of that mission, the aim of my team uh, is and has long been to attract students from a wide variety of backgrounds, identities, and experiences the SCOTUS decision hasn't changed that. We'll continue to read applications with attentiveness, curiosity, openness, and care, and in a way that's both holistic and compliant with federal law. Well, that's terrific. And I'm glad that you talked about the fact that equity and inclusion is a huge part of the Bryn Mawr mission. So thank mm-hmm. you for bringing that up, Nicole. We appreciate it. Again, yeah. this has been awesome. I'm so glad that I had you here today. Unfortunately, it does lead us to the last question, which is, <laughs> What are your top three pieces of advice you would provide a student and their parents who are getting ready for the college admissions process? 
Hmm. Well, my first piece of advice is about financial aid, because all of the data tells us that finances are the number one driver of college choice. So I have a few things to say here. One, (laughs) students, is that you should not shop colleges based on the sticker price. And that's the tuition, food, and housing total published on college websites. Many private colleges like Bryn Mawr offer very generous financial aid awards that can rival and in some cases beat the in-state tuition a student might pay at their home institution. Second, and this is to families, don't wait on having financial aid conversations until you have offers of admission in hand. The college process should include general and school-specific research about college cost. It's an investment, to be sure, and I think that when families understand that early, it can curb disappointment down the line. So prepare to ask your schools of interest how they build financial aid packages, whether they meet 100% of demonstrated financial need, what the average financial aid award is for students with need, and what percentage of their students receive aid. At Bryn Mawr, the answer to that last question is 83% of our students receive aid. And the average financial aid package for those with need in our first-year cohort was around $61,000. We are very, very proud at Bryn Mawr to meet 100% of need through a combination of loans, work-study, grants, and merit awards where applicable. The one exception, and it's a good one, is that for our lowest-income families, (laughs) our financial aid packages don't include loans. That bar is currently set at families making $60,000 or less who also have less than $500,000 in assets, but we're actively looking into doing more in future cycles, and I am very excited about that. The final thing I want to say about financial aid is this. There are these great cost estimator tools on all financial aid websites. Uh, The standard one and the one that Bryn Mawr uses is called the Net Price Calculator. It is very well worth the hour it will take to input your family financial data because it will give you an estimate of what your family will be expected to pay in support of your attendance if offered admission at that institution. Okay, so let me move on from financial aid. My second piece of advice is this. Think fit first. Put differently, don't limit yourself to a college search or decision based solely on rankings because you don't just want to be happy with the sweatshirt. You want to be happy with the four-year experience (laughs) you're going to have at your chosen institution, right? So there are a couple of key questions you can ask when interacting with a college that can help you get um, under the hood of fit. So you should be thinking, will I be comfortable being myself on this campus among this particular student body? Will I also be challenged to become a better version of myself here, intellectually, personally, experientially? Because while you definitely want to see others like you among a current student body, you also want to be sure you're seeing others you want to be like on campus. Because if you came out of college the same person you went in, you've missed a huge opportunity. So center (laughs) fit, not peer pressure or other noise in your college search. And my parting words, my last piece of advice is for students. Try to find the joy in this process. While some parts of the college process can be tedious, for sure, don't lose sight of the fact that you're about to embark upon a course of self-affirmation and discovery. Each step in the college process, so considering and articulating your academic goals, the self-awareness you'll gain um, in assessing fit, the practice of distilling the essence of who you are into a (laughs) 650-word essay, each of those is an opportunity to know yourself better. So be sure to stay open to all the discoveries and joys you'll find along the way. 
Well, those are tremendous pieces of advice. I love that you talked about financial aid and you mentioned the net price calculator, which by the way, every college has to have it. Usually it's in their website. If you just do a simple search, students and parents, you'll be able to find it. And it's important to have those conversations early and frequent in terms of the finances that your family can or cannot afford. So we appreciate that. Of course, number two, you said think fit first. Stop worrying about the sweatshirt. Perhaps stop worrying about the sticker that's going to go behind the car. What is the right fit for you? Where are you going to go and feel comfortable to be yourself, but also to graduate college one day and become a better version of who you were in high school, right? We want to have that growth mindset. And of course, at last, find the joy in the process. Those are tremendous pieces of advice, Nicole. This is so awesome. I'm so happy as I know that this is going to help so many students and their parents as they navigate through the college admissions process. I do hope to have you again. You're awesome. Thank you so much, Nicole. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And best of luck to students in the search. Absolutely. Good luck to everyone out there. Thank you so much, Nicole. Take care, everyone. Best wishes. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Cap, the College Admissions Process Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please don't forget to tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am your host, John Durante, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The Cap.